So when I was a kid, there was this super cool magazine. Some of you might know it, maybe by show of hands, any Ranger Rick fans out there? Five. <laughs> Five of us know Ranger Rick. My, one of my favorite things about Ranger Rick, I think my parents got it to me because they thought I'd be, you know, into science or something. <laughs> but one of my favorite things about the Ranger Rick magazine, at least I think it was the Ranger Rick, so maybe this is my chance to be called out on my fallacious memory, but the inside back cover of Ranger Rick magazine had a grid of like six photos and they were common, regular, everyday objects, but it was zoomed in to the point where you had no idea what they were. And it was like a quiz. It was like, am I right? Do you remember this? Anyone? All five of you? Thank you. Yes. It has been confirmed. It was Ranger Rick magazine. And it was this, if you zoom in to the point where these things were completely unrecognizable because it had been, the camera had been zoomed in so much, you had no idea what it was or what it was for. An image kind of like this. A scanning electron micrograph of what exactly? Any ideas? Close. Dental floss. <laughs> Used dental floss. Mm-hmm. Or how about something like this? The starscape as the Millennium Falcon engages its hyperdrive. <laughs> but I heard, oh wow, Cilia, someone is a biology person. Uh, I did hear the answer out there though. It's a paintbrush. Designed to absorb pigment and transfer it to another medium. Or how about this one? There's only three, so this is the last one. What does that look like to you? <laughs> I didn't hear that, and I'm not sure I wanted to. It certainly looks smooth, right? Something you might want on delicate parts of your body. Here's the point. Sometimes when you zoom in, you lose sight of what a thing is for. It becomes unrecognizable. If you spend too much time looking inward, the question of what is something for is sometimes obscured. It's interesting. I was just downstairs in the Sunday morning seminars uh, and we had a group of 30 people down there talking about looking inward to find out who God has made us to be so that we might love and serve in His name effectively. So we're down there saying what we want to do is look inward to see who God has created us to be. And then I come upstairs and say you don't want to look inward. Zooming in is not always the best policy. We actually live in a culture and an age where zooming in is sort of the accepted practice. If you want to find meaning, if you want to find truth, if you want to know what is of utmost importance, the, the cultural narrative in which we find ourselves says, look within. How do you feel? And is that feeling is then what dictates reality. And perhaps I'm here to challenge that narrative and to say there's actually a better path to finding reality than looking within. Sometimes zooming in actually obscures reality. 
what you're looking at becomes unrecognizable when you look at it from within and you can't even tell what a thing is for. Perhaps instead we need to zoom out. And by zooming out, I'm proposing a different path to finding out what something is for, a different path to finding out what you and I are for. By zooming out, I'm saying maybe we need to get our eyes off ourselves and instead look upward. Maybe instead of looking to the creation, the created, and saying, define yourself, maybe we should ask the Creator. What have you designed us for? Who did you make us to be? Maybe it's time to ask Jesus. And at this time every year, it's September. Everything's kicking off. All the different ministries start up again. Small groups, Sunday school, uh, Sunday morning seminars. There's all kinds of great things happening. And we can get so busy doing the stuff that we forget why we're doing the stuff. And we lose sight of ourselves because we're just too zoomed in. This is the time of year, every year, where we need to zoom back out and ask Jesus, what is it we're doing it all for? You made us. You created us, Lord. Like a potter shaping clay. And we're asking the question, what are you made for? We're going to turn our attention to a place in Scripture where Jesus answers the question. And He answers it definitively. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16-20. through 20. And if you are using a Black Pew Bible, you will find that on page 811. And as we turn our attention to God's Word, uh, let's give this time to Him and ask Him to speak. So Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning having sung songs declaring what we're made for. And now we turn to Your Word to hear directly from Your lips, Lord Jesus, what it is we're made for. Help us to meet with You. We recognize Your presence here among us, Holy Spirit, and we ask that You would illuminate Your Word to the hearts and minds of Your people. There are going to be different pieces of this that may connect with us this morning. Different pieces connecting with different people. And we ask, even at the front end of this, that You would connect the right pieces with the right people to call them higher up and deeper into life with You. We choose to allow ourselves to be changed. So may we be changed by this encounter with Your Word and with Your Spirit and with Your presence, we ask in Your name. Amen. So this morning we are exploring what you are made for. And instead of zooming in, which we're doing downstairs, another shameless plug, Sunday morning seminars, 9 o'clock, you should all come. Instead we're zooming out to ask Jesus Himself, what do you have to say about this? Matthew 28, starting at verse 16, we find these words, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, wait, I'm not going to tell you what He said yet. I mean, I suppose you could just read the next line in your Bible, so it's not a big secret. But I want to stop here because words need context. Rather than just jumping into what Jesus said, we've got to capture the moment into which He spoke them. Right? These disciples have walked and talked with Jesus for three years. 
they've become convinced He is the Messiah, the One, the Savior, who would free God's people. The One they've been waiting for for thousands of years. And they've seen Jesus teach the crowds with such authority and wisdom that He blew people's minds. He saw, they've seen Jesus heal the sick. They've seen Him raise the dead. They've seen Him calm the storm. They've seen Him demonstrate unequivocally that He is God. Unequivocally, at least until He was nailed to a cross and died. And then He rose again. And the disciples, can you put yourself in that mindset? You've gone from, this is the guy, look, God is with us, to, I guess He wasn't the guy? To, oh, everything has changed now. If He rose from the dead, that means everything has changed. The question I would think that is on their hearts and minds is, so now what? Jesus comes back from the dead and He says, go meet me on this mountain. And they go up to the mountain and Jesus shows up. And what He's about to give them are His last words. His final instructions. There must have been an anticipation. There must have been some confusion. There must have been some head scratching and some serious excitement saying, what is Jesus going to say? Last words are huge. They are of enormous significance. Yes, I might have gone online to find some famous last words. Like, from a guy named Dominique Bohour, a French grammarian. Of course, that catapults you to the epitome of fame, being a French grammarian. (laughs) These are his last words. I am about to, or I am going to die. Either expression is correct. We laugh, but does that not summarize a life? (laughs) Or John Wayne reportedly said to his wife on his deathbed, of course I know who you are. You're my girl. I love you. Does that not encapsulate a life? Or Harriet Tubman, abolitionist, activist, heavily influential in the Underground Railroad, and her last words reportedly were, swing low, sweet chariot. Does that not encapsulate a life? And here we turn with the disciples on a mountain and Jesus is about to ascend to heaven and He's giving His last words. What are His final instructions to His disciples? That's why when we read these words, we should be on, on the edges of our seats saying, what's coming next? The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped and some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, well, this is what He said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me, says Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He commissions them. He gives them instructions. His final words... Give them their marching orders. They're asking the question, what now? 
We've walked with you and talked with you. We believe that you're God, but then you died, and then you rose again, proving you're God. And now what? What are we made for, Lord? Where do we go from here? And this is his answer. Let's break it down a little bit. Because this is the answer that he gave to those disciples. And by extension, to every follower of Jesus from that day until this one. What are we made for? It starts right here. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, this is a line that does not get as much uh, attention as it deserves. We always start with, therefore, go and make disciples. And we skip this line. Stop skipping lines, people. Because Jesus begins by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What Jesus is saying is, what are you made for? It starts with worship. It starts with recognizing that Jesus has all of the authority in all of heaven or all of earth. And because of that, He is worthy of worship. It's what the disciples did when they saw Him, right? They worshipped, and some doubted, which means they're human. But the very first thing we draw from Jesus' final words, answering the question, what are we made for? We are made to worship. And how do you worship? Well, clearly there's only one way. You sing. At church on Sunday mornings between 10.30 and noon. I jest, but I shouldn't. Because lifting your voice to exalt the name of Jesus is one of the highest privileges that we have. Gathering together as His people to lift up the name of Jesus is one of the greatest privileges we have. From time to time, we lapse into seasons where it becomes rote rehearsal. But think of the beautiful intentionality of what it says when God's people for thousands of years have been gathering every week to ascribe worth to Jesus for who who He is. Think of the beautiful diversity of all of the traditions, whether you're crazy casual like we are here at Community Church or the beauty of high liturgy and the intentionality that comes with approaching the Lord in that kind of formal setting. Raise your voice to ascribe worth to Jesus for who He is because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. So sometimes we come and we sing our songs and we've sung that song before and we kind of might not even like that song and we kind of lapse into that just that mode, right? That my lips keep moving but my brain is menu planning or thinking about what's happening later tonight. And we sort of check out and we go through the motions. When I say sing with your voice, I also mean I give you permission not to sing. Sometimes you need to shut your mouth and look at the words you're singing and say, do I believe that? Is that true? And having reflected on the words, maybe then, only after reflection, do you need to actually open your mouth and say, yes, I agree. I agree with my community. I agree with what the Scriptures say. He is Lord and I will worship. And I'm telling you, sit out the first verse. And when you sing the second, you'll be in a place of agreement. And you might find that your actual experience of worship is transformed. Be intentional, thoughtful. Sing with your voice. But you better be singing with your lives as well. Your lives should be a a symphony of worship. 
whether it is the job at which you work, whether it itself can be seen as redemptive or not, the attitude you bring into work sure can be. The way you interact with coworkers, the way you interact with clients and bosses, if you are gracious and humble and kind and hardworking, and if you are reflecting positively on the name and reputation of Jesus, you are ascribing worth to God for who He is. Whether it's your work, whether you're a student doing everything you do to the glory of God, whether it's the testimony of your bank statement, what are you spending your money on? Is it all for you? What are you giving your money towards? Are you investing in the kingdom of God? Does, do your finances reflect a heart, a life that is a symphony of worship? Even just the way we interact with an unbelieving world that tends to disagree with us kind of a lot. Are we angry? Are we defensive? Or are we loving and gracious and winsome? Are we good listeners? Are we people who ask good questions to understand where people are coming from so we can actually interact in real ways? Brendan Manning said the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny Him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. You and I are made to worship. We need to sing with our voices and we need to allow our lives to be a symphony of praise to the King. And all that from one line. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. You are made to worship. But he keeps going, right? Then there's this make disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And here we find a second reason we exist. A second thing that we are made for. We are made for worship, yes. But we are also made to grow. We are made to grow. The language that says making disciples, that word disciple just means learner. Someone who learns. Someone who is actively learning. Someone who is a student of. Make followers. Learners of Jesus. Which implies that none of us have arrived yet. We're all in process. None of us are in that place of folding our arms saying, well, we've got it figured out. If only the rest of the world could get their act together. I think being a learner involves a posture of openness. A willingness to be challenged to see the world differently. A willingness to engage in ideas that aren't part of our accepted canon. To be always intellectually curious, always hungry, pursuing truth. And maybe even being open to being changed in our behavior, in our decisions, in our choices, in the, the ways we live our lives an openness and a willingness to see the world differently and be changed in light of it. Because if we're actually worshiping the all-powerful God of the universe, I'm pretty sure He's got some things He wants to change in us. Perhaps you've seen this cartoon of two guys trying to argue about what they see truth as. And one guy's like, totally a nine, dude. And the other guy's, no, it's a six. And they get so hot and bothered trying to argue that they're right. And they fail to realize that it's all a matter of perspective, a matter of vantage point. A learner is someone who is willing to come from one side and say, well, let me look at it from your side. 
<laughs> Look at that, it is a nine. So maintaining the posture of a learner, of a disciple, being taught to obey everything Jesus commands sometimes means seeing the world differently than we thought. Now, some of you are already nervous. That sounds awfully relativistic, Tim. Are you saying everything is just a matter of perspective? No. Sometimes one of the guys is like, that's a two. It's just not. So sometimes you have to say, no, man, it's a six. Or, or, or maybe a nine. But it's certainly not a two. What, what I'm describing or attempting to describe is the posture of one who is a learner. Who doesn't have to have all the right answers. Who's okay being midway through being shaped by God. Open to seeing things from other people's point of view. But when you find truth, you grab hold with both hands and you never, ever let go. You are made to grow. This is what Jesus is saying when you're to be making disciples. We're to be involved in making disciples even as we are disciples ourselves, growing under His tutelage, teaching to obey everything Jesus has commanded. You are made to grow. You're also made to go. Right, and this is the one that gets all the headlines. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You are called not just to be a person of worship and not just to be a person who grows. You're also, what are you made for? You're made to share that which God has revealed to us. Evangelism. Isn't it interesting that people kind of laugh nervously when that word is said out loud? Yeah, I think evangelism has been given a bad rap. The language of sharing that which you have received with others has less baggage. It's not that evangelism is wrong. It literally means good newsing. I want to good news you. It turns the noun into a verb. Like, I want to share with you the good news. And this is something we're called to do. To introduce people, to point people to Jesus. The beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about being a Christian is we don't have to have all the answers. We just know the one who does. And so our job is not to convince anyone of anything. Our job is to make introductions. Oh, you haven't met Jesus yet? Come here, let me introduce you. And then we let Jesus be the one who actually transforms people's lives. We let Jesus be the one who brings conviction on sin. We let Jesus be the one who helps shape and grow and captivate someone's imagination, heart, life, and vision so much that they say, everything else is refuse compared to the joy of knowing you. And we say, but I don't want to do that. I, I don't like doing that. It's always awkward. I don't like talking to people about Jesus. And maybe it's because you've seen it done badly. Maybe it's because it's been done badly to you. Maybe it's because we're the ones who've been doing it badly. But maybe, again, a perspective shift can um, redeem a word like evangelism. D.T. Niles says it very well when he says evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And if that's all we're doing, I think we can handle that, people. This is no hard sell. This is no, we must convince them in one conversation or they're going straight to hell. 
This is God has people on a journey. He brings us alongside them for a season. And where we've found bread, we just have to tell other people, look, there's some bread over there. You should totally check it out. His name is Jesus and he's the bread of life. You are made to share what God has shown you about himself. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? To a group of disciples with dusty sandals and confuddled brains. We're like, what just happened? Death, resurrection, and now Jesus is saying, what's he saying? What, what are we here for? What do we do now? What, how, where do we go from here? What are we made for, Jesus? He's saying, let me tell you, you were made for this. And then he gives them this commission. He says, you were, you were made for this. Remember, I made you. Colossians teaches us that through Him and for Him, all things were made, referring specifically to Jesus. Jesus made you for these things. So when we look at this commission that He's given, when we focus in on these words and we see all authority has been given to Him, we know we are made to worship. We see that we're to be making disciples and being disciples and we're to be growing in our ability to obey everything He's commanded. We know we are supposed to grow. And then we're supposed to be going and making new disciples and sharing the love of Jesus and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which we're doing next weekend. Baptism plug. We're meant to share the good news of who Jesus is. So when we pull these all back together again, you'll find some concepts that should be familiar to you. None of you saw this coming. We talk about worship, but when we're a community church, we use the language of exalt. We exist to exalt Christ. When we talk about growth, we say as a church, we want to be a place where we equip you and where we equip one another to grow as followers of Jesus. And when we talk about sharing the love of God, we, we, we'd like everything to start with the letter E. And by letters, the second letter has to be a high Scrabble value letter. But not only are we called to exalt Christ and to equip one another, we are called to extend the grace of God into an unbelieving world. And that can be by loving and serving in Jesus' name, or that can be by sharing with our lips, declaring the truth of what God has done for us. And so if you've got a bulletin this morning, you may recognize, hey, wait, yeah, those words are familiar. Yes, they're at the top of our bulletin every single week. That's the weird thing about things that we do every single week is we stop seeing them. This morning, I want you to see them again. And I want to redeem those terms for you. Exalt Christ. Equip one another. Extend His grace. I want you to see that they are not just biblical. They are the very words of Jesus as His confuddled and confused disciples are asking the question, what do we do now? What are we made for? And Jesus says, I'll lay it out for you. You're to exalt me because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You're to equip one another. You're supposed to grow and learn how to obey everything I've commanded you. And you're supposed to extend my grace. You've seen it at the cross. While you were still sinners, I died for you, Jesus says. Now go love people before they earn it, before they deserve it, whoever they are. Love them in my name and point them to me. And if we can capture that then we're going to be ready for everything that God has in store for us. And that's what this season is about. September, these opening weeks of September are pregnant with 
with possibilities. There is an anticipation that comes naturally at this time of year, and I want to jump on that bandwagon, and I want to like, get excited about it. I want to jump up and down and say, get excited with me, because we are entering a new season of life together. What might God do next? I don't know. It's just going to be good if we are ready to exalt His name, to be equipping one another, and to extend His grace. But wait. We missed something. Did you notice that we missed something? Okay, back to the bulletin. We're to exalt Christ, equip one another, extend His grace. Three E's, three high scrabble letters. But if we go back to Jesus' last words, we actually miss something He said. Oh wait, there's one more line. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And whenever you see God say, I am with you, (laughs) you need to like stop the truck, get out and camp out there for a while. That is one of the biggest and most significant themes that runs through all of Scripture. I will be with you, says the Lord. I mean, that's how it was designed for in the beginning, right? Adam and Eve went for walks with God in the cool of the day. His divine presence was with them in direct and immediate fellowship. Yeah, we kind of broke that. So then he constitutes his people on Mount Sinai, having rescued them from Egypt, and says, Let me constitute you as a new nation, as a people oriented around me. And he says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be with you and be your God. So he establishes the tabernacle as a visible reminder of his presence and a literal expression of his presence in the midst of his people. And then they build the temple, which once again is this centralizing. It is the reminder that God is with us. And then Jesus comes. And what does the word Emmanuel mean? God with us. Jesus comes as God Himself in human form to actually walk among us, to talk with us, to demonstrate who the heart and character of God is. Then the church, the era of the church shows up. And the New Testament writers talk about being built as as stones into a spiritual house, that the church is the new temple, the place where where God Himself dwells, where God is with us. And if you turn to the end of Revelation, what do we find? But the promise that there will be no more crying or tears or sorrow or pain because He will be with us and be our God and we will be His people. This is the win. This is the end game. It is the presence of God with us. And when we stop reading Jesus' words one sentence too early, we miss out on that which actually transforms everything else that He said. I propose to you here this morning, O community church, we need to adopt a fourth E. And unfortunately, the second letter is not nearly as high a Scrabble value. But I think we need to be reminded that we need to enjoy the presence of Christ together. It is important that we exalt Christ. Absolutely. 
It is incredibly important that we equip one another and grow. It is super important that we extend His grace. But all of this can be busy work and empty and void and hollow. And our souls can be corroding with all of the busyness of the doing if we don't stop to simply be in the very presence of Jesus and enjoy Him. He's invited us into a relationship, not into a work contract. Yet this is the time of year we think in work contracts. We think, what are my commitments? What am I stepping into? What ministry am I going to lead? How am I going to do that? Where am I going to be? How am I going to serve? And that's good and right and healthy unless you forget the fourth E. Which is, when am I going to just stop and delight in who God is and enjoy His presence? So we need to like take the bullet and then like grab a pen right now and like write on and enjoy His presence across the bottom because I genuinely believe that only then when you take the whole counsel of what Jesus is saying there, not just everything but the last line, but if you even include the last line, that's what it means to be ready for all that God has in store for us. When we are a people longing to actually simply spend time with Jesus. It's interesting. We can get lost in the first three E's and might even get confused thinking if we just live out these three E's, then Jesus will love us. (laughs) But really, the Bible teaches the exact opposite, which is enjoy the presence of Jesus because He's already accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. And out of a grateful, overflowing response to that, then you get to go on with the other E's. I want to end with one last zoomed-in picture. What's this a zoom-in of? This is a church zoomed in too far. If you zoom the camera out, this is a church. This is a church whose hearts and minds are captivated by what Jesus did at the cross. These are not real silhouettes of people in our church. (laughs) I'm pretty sure the one on the left don't even go there. When we come together to pursue Jesus together, there is a place for zooming in and exploring who God has made us to be. But that has to be balanced by zooming out to remember the body of Christ is beautiful and diverse. And when we come together to chase after Him, that is the fullest expression of who God is calling us to be. As we exalt His name together, as we equip one another, as we extend His grace to each other and out into an unbelieving world, and as we take the time to enjoy Him. Which E is yours? That's the question I leave you with. Which E is yours? Is the Lord giving you to say, hey, here's one for you to deal with right now. Which E is God inviting you to enter into in a deeper way? Is He calling you into worship? How do you transform your experience of Sunday morning so it's not just going through the motions or your experience of every other moment of your life out there? Is He asking you, how are you being equipped 
How are you growing? What are you doing in order to put yourself in a position to grow? Or as he may even be saying, who are you helping to grow? Is he asking you to extend his grace in a new way, in a new season, in a new place? Or is he saying, sit down, shut up, and know that I am God? Whichever one he's working on at the moment, respond. Meet them there. Open yourself to be changed. Because as we focus on these kinds of things, as we've heard directly as these last words of Jesus right from His mouth, this is what we're made for. Let's pursue that together as His people. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, even now we want to give you a little bit of space. In the next few moments of silence, Lord, we invite you to speak. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the clarity of your commission and the promise of your presence, that you haven't just assigned us tasks, but you've invited us into this relationship with you. We want to be with you, even as you've promised to be with us. But as learners, as those who want to grow, we want to open ourselves to you even now. Lord, speak to us. Give us an E. <laughs> Give us one place where you want to see us being shaped. Trusting that you will not break a bruised reed, that you will be gentle where you need to be gentle, but also trusting that you'll be a God who is able to discipline his children and to give a swift kick in the pants where you need to as well. A God who knows us so well that you know what we need when we need it. Speak now, Lord, in these moments of silence. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that these words of Jesus were captured, were recorded, were preserved so that we might have access to them even today. We thank You for revealing Your heart to us. And we thank You for challenging us. Challenging us to be ever growing closer to the likeness of Jesus. And that you don't just challenge us, but you also send your spirit within us to empower change. This morning, Father, you, you see our lives. You're at work. We want to be ready for all that you have in store for us. That could be big and splashy, and it could be really subtle, but meaningful and deep and good and true. We choose to humble ourselves before you and to allow you to work the way you're going to work. We lay our lives bare before you, saying, Search me and know me, O God. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, O Lord. And lead us in life everlasting. 
that we might exalt Your name, that we might equip one another, that we might extend Your grace to each other and into a broken world that needs You so much. And that as we are doing it all, that we wouldn't lose sight of why we do it. That we get to enjoy life together with You, Lord Jesus. That You are with us and You are our God and we are Your people. We give You permission to do Your thing in us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.